and welcome to CXO Talk episode 231. It's uh, Tuesday, May 9th. Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, we have a very special guest uh, today, um, a person I've got to know recently uh, doing some global travel, um, David Chow. He is the CIO and now also the CDO, Chief Digital Officer of uh, Children's Mercy Kansas City. Welcome, David. Thank you, Diana. Thanks for having me. You bet. Uh, we've had you on the show before. Uh, and so we're hoping to do kind of a catch up uh, on all the things that are happening. Digital is changing faster than ever. Uh, we thought we'd revisit uh, what you're up to, how things are, uh, your new role as chief digital officer. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about, uh, give us an update on Children's Mercy, um, you know, get people familiar with how big you guys are, um, you know, any, any interesting stats, uh, and we'll take it from there. Yeah, thank you. So Children's Mercy is a pediatric standalone hospital in Kansas City. We're a $2 billion organization. We have almost 8,000 employees. Some interesting stat is we're at an academic medical center. We're building a huge research arm, a lot of investment there. And we are a training facility for a few of the surrounding colleges, like the University of Kansas, University of Missouri, Kansas City. So we pride ourselves on being that flagship hospital from a pediatric space here. Some interesting stats, we, we had over 20,000 procedures last year over 14,000 patients. Um, most importantly, we, we serve everyone. So what does that mean when we say we serve everyone? That means whether you have insurance or not, we provide care. So we have an estimated um, total of about $119 million in uncompensated care for the state of Missouri and Kansas. So that's one of our missions that we pride upon is any kid who enters our hospital, they're going to get the best treatment that we can provide in terms of care. And that's, that's one of the main reasons why I joined the organization when I saw the quality of care that this organization provides, it is truly exceptional. And it is a place where I would take my kids to. And that speaks a lot when you work in healthcare, um, in the healthcare space where I've seen organizations where I probably would have had second doubts about bringing my own kids to the facility. Now, that's a, that's a great mandate and mission that you guys have there and, and probably gets you excited to get up in the morning and, and use technology to, to improve things there. I, Describe your, your role there now. It's shifted a little bit. You were chief information officer, and now that role has expanded. Uh, what are you responsible for, and how has that grown over the, the last few years? Yeah, so you know, we added the title of chief digital officer because we're in the digital world now. Think about every organization. They are a digital um, organization, whether you like it or not. It doesn't matter whether you're in agriculture or finance or healthcare. You're a digital company. So that's part of the reason why I want to make that stamp on the title is where, in addition to leading the core technology and all the various functions of the CIO, but start having the organization transform and think about a digital experience. And that can mean a lot of things, but it really uh, puts that stamp in terms of my role. I would say when I first started here a year ago, a lot of, a lot, a lot of the transformation was on the culture building the teams, and I would say I was only able to spend about 60% of my time focusing on digital and focusing on the business side of the house. Now I'm at 80%, uh, and, and that's where it needs to really be for us to transform the department, the internal organization, and that's going to help us provide the best care for the citizens of Missouri and Kansas. I've actually uh, worked a little bit, I've uh, advised some the boards of directors of, of, of healthcare associations, and I kind of get a pushback. The people who are in healthcare are really caught up in the mission that you just described before, right? Helping sick people get better. Um, do you tell them that they're, you know, that 
every organization is becoming a digital organization, every company is becoming a technology company, and what do they say about that? It's still a very new concept. Um, some folks may give me their friends as well, this is coming from a technology leader. Of course you want to be the center of attention, but it, it is true. When you think about the biggest investment that we have made as an organization, our biggest investment has been technology. It's not, about, it's not the MRI machine, it's not the DaVinci robots, it's actually our spent in the technology portfolio end to end. So if you think about it, you're spending hundreds of million dollars on technology, but you're not operating as a software provider or even a product vendor, you will never be successful. So it's a very, it's a, it's a mind shift and you have to change that perspective. And that's something, some of the things that I always talk to my senior leaders when I, when I put it in perspective, the amount of money that they are spending on technology, um, we have to really change our mindset. Even more so when we talk about the CDO role, the chief digital officer, lots of organizations have approached me, um, big healthcare systems where they have great CIOs and the CEO would say, you know, David, here's, here's my dilemma right now. I have a great CIO, world-class, renowned, does a great job of keeping the lights on, but I feel I'm missing something. I don't feel as if I'm transforming towards this digital era. Do I need to find a chief digital officer? Is that the right play? So um, I hear a lot of those discussions coming up from CEOs across the U.S. from a healthcare perspective where they know they're missing something and they haven't figured out what is that, that is that gap. And I think that's where the role of the CDO comes in. But hopefully the CIO can also play that role because that's, that's my expectation. Someone who's leading the technology initiative should be focused. Well, it's the old one throat to choke argument, right? It's uh, yeah. ultimately, if you don't want the you know, technology rolling up to two high-level parts of the organization doing what will end up being two different things, then you got to figure out, you know, how, how do you, how do you create one unified technology environment? Um, I think that's a big challenge, but it's very interesting what you said uh, that, you know, not only do you have to manage down, but you need to manage up and, and help the, the leaders in the organization navigate their digital future. Uh, how much of that of your time is spent doing that and in, in, you know, trying to coach the, the, the other C-levels in your organization, coach the board and any other steering members you might have? I would say part of my role, I'm a sales guy. No matter, my wife always, always asks me, what do you do every day? Because she knows I can't fix computers end to end. So, you know, part of my job is education. I need to sell upwards, downwards, laterally. So, yes, definitely educating the board, educating the other peers in the C-suite is critical. Because if you think about the world that we live in, everyone has a great retail experience. Everyone would like that same experience in the hospital setting. The convenience factor, the Amazon factor, that's what we're moving towards. You want a personalized experience, but healthcare is still catching up in terms of creating that experience. So at the same time, we as consumers in other industries have this great experience, but somehow we're not able to transform that when we're providing care. So that's what we're going to have to move down to. And that's part of the education process where I want to get people thinking about their experience as consumer and try to transform that into how we operationalize. Yeah, no, that's a great insight. Um, and, and I think a lot of people wonder about that is they don't feel like they have that consumer quality experience. Yet, as you pointed out, healthcare organizations are, are very tech-centric. They're bristling with technology and how they deliver almost everything they do. Uh, why is that? Is, there, is it regulatory constraints? So what are the issues? Why can't the healthcare consumerize as much as, as other services? It's a very risk-averse industry. Um, there's a, it's also very traditional. If you look at, I'll be very frank, you look at some of the leaders and decision-makers in healthcare, this may be their last gig or they may want to set for one more big gig after this. So when you have that environment where people are risk averse and they may not take the big gamble on making the big decision of change, 
the whole industry doesn't change. That I was that's number one. Secondly, a lot of these major enterprise healthcare software platforms, they're built on legacy code. So mumps, COBOL, these are what's driving these enterprise multi-million dollar, billion dollar systems. So when you have that core infrastructure on legacy technology, how do you transform? How do you even create APIs? How do you get to that point of scale and where the other industry are? I would say those are the biggest two crutch, in my opinion, which is forcing healthcare to not adapt as quickly. But the reality is we have come a long way. The past eight years, we have come a long way towards being electronic. There's a huge mandate of getting to electronic records, but it's that's just a starting point. We have not got to the other piece. Well, and, and where does that investment come from? When I talk to most CIOs, uh, I, one of the things I ask them is how much of your budgets, you know, put into keeping all your legacy uh, uh, infrastructure running, all, all the apps and all the services you have now. And it's usually between 80 and 90%, leaving about 10 to 20 to innovate and to, to build out that digital future. Uh, is, is adding that CDO role giving you more budget? Um, you know, what? how are you able to, to start growing that? Because uh, Legacy Mountain, as we call it, is really pulling down, pulling back a lot of CIOs that I talked with. Yeah. And one, one, I think that's a great point. If you think about most CDOs coming in, they probably don't have an operating budget. And no. they may be a one-man shop or they may have another member of the team, but they don't have a spending authority. Part of the reason why I made the push to get the CDO title is because I had to, I had, still have the spending authority of the CIO, the same budget. I didn't ask for anything more, but now I could transform and shift the technology spend to be more digitally central and centric versus focusing on core technology, getting all things to the cloud, getting out of the data center business, moving everything to a mobile first platform. That's sort of, that's what we're moving towards. So because I have the budget of the CIO, I'm able to transform and get to the digital experience a lot faster with the spending authority. Yeah, that's, um... Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, the CIO tends to have, you know, the experience in building their budget. Uh, we just got a question that came in from Twitter. Uh, for those of you uh, that are watching the show, you can always post your questions with the CXO Talk hashtag, and, and we'll try and get to them. Uh, we have a question from Scott Weitzman. Uh, how are patients responding to the digital transformation of their care? Do they actually like this? Do they, do they want to use uh, mobile apps on their phone? Uh, I can imagine some, maybe, maybe not. What, what's your experience been so far? You know what surprised me? The biggest adopter of uh, digital technology are the elders, folks over 60 years old. Well, obviously right now I'm in the pediatric space, but when I was in an organization that had both adults and kids, our biggest adopter of technology was the one that's over 60. And the the days of having an excuse of where people do not know how to use technology, that's the days of the past. Everyone knows how to Skype. Everyone knows how to use technology to communicate with their grandkids or their kids. So it's everywhere around us. Um, so adoption rate is high, especially in the pediatric world, most, where most of our, our consumers, the kids, um, parents, they're millennials. They grew up with this technology. They, they, they want it more than ever. They want to be able to text. They want to be able to have a web chat versus calling in versus having a face-to-face. So for us, especially in the pediatric world, it, it, it's in high demand. And we're seeing some good adoption. Not there yet because the technology um, portfolio is, is not where it needs to be in terms of maturity model yet, but we 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 will get a lot of adoption from folks who are craving that digital experience. Me personally, I I prefer to use that virtual care model where I could create an appointment, I could get a doctor seeing me 30 minutes for my kid, then pick up a prescription at the local pharmacy, retail pharmacy, all within that one hour. I will pay 
the additional dollars, which is not covered under my insurance, to get that convenience, then I would bet most of most folks would pay that premium. Well, absolutely. Well, I have, I have health insurance, but uh, since I travel all the time, uh, I have a mobile app where I can see a doctor for $50. I have to say I use that more than I use my my regular healthcare provider. Uh, so that's interesting. Is it convenience and kind of the urgency because it's a health issue, Trump's concerns about privacy or the fact that it's unfamiliar to most people still? I would say so. Um, if you think about the world that we live in, right, all of us are social um, individuals and social creatures, Diana. They know where we are right now as we speak. So in terms of privacy, we're giving up a lot of privacy for the convenience factor. And I would say that that trend is going to continue um, as we evolve, where privacy may not be a big, as big of a concern. But yes, there's still a lot of folks concerned privacy. Um, but the reality is the convenience really outweighs that privacy concern. And that's the trend that we'll be moving towards. Yeah, excellent. Uh, so um, before we take the next question, can you give us an update on your digital transformation journey since we last spoke with you? Uh, you know, what, what are the major parts of it? Uh, you know, uh, what have you encountered? Uh, what's up next? Yeah, so the start of any digital transformation, it's, it's a journey. Uh, it's a cultural transformation that needs to start. And we're very early in that maturity model. So I walked into an organization that did not have a digital strategy, let alone a technology strategy, missing a lot of the core components of it. So the first year coming in was putting together a roadmap, getting together the right leaders and shifting their mindset to be more digitally focused. Um, and that's where we're at in that journey. It's almost similar to any organization that has gone through a lean transformation where the start to the culture. Unfortunately, there's not an easy button I could buy um, to, to solve this problem. The, the easy part is actually the technology. I could buy the greatest technology out there that could solve the problem, but without the adoption rate internally and externally, it's not going to get done. So for us at Children's Mercy, we're in year two of this transformation uh, of this digital experience. And the end goal is to try to create, we want to create that retail-like experience for healthcare. Yeah, so I, 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 when I talk to a lot of programs, you now I hear about them being in year two, and the stakeholders, they don't see all of the plumbing and the infrastructure, the opening up of the data, you know, all of that takes an enormous amount of effort to do that before you can even show any results. So uh, are you running into challenges like that, um, saying, you know, well, hey, you know, you're year two, you should have all this stuff out, and you're like, no, I'm just trying to build my infrastructure to, to, to make, you know, the art of the possible happen? Fortunately for me, I've had great support here. People understood what has transpired. You know, I walked into an organization where my predecessor was here for 25 plus years. So um, they, they knew there's a lot of legacy. There's a lot of things were done the way it has been uh, mentality. And there's the change like that doesn't happen overnight. So fortunately for me, I've had a lot of support in terms of getting getting this transformation started. But like you said, the, the plumbing, the pipes, the, the foundational element, there's a lot to it that needs to be to, to, to be fixed. And my biggest challenge is going to be right now, or it is right now, how do I transform while keeping things going? But most importantly, I'm trying to think about how do we leapfrog? We think about developing, developing countries versus developed countries. The, the developing countries may have an advantage where they can leapfrog and bypass some of that traditional infrastructure. So that's where I think we may have an advantage when I put in that, in that mentality in mind for the organization. Let's just leapfrog. Let's just forget about going through that traditional path of building the same infrastructure. Let's just get the latest and greatest and take that leap. So fortunately, you know, I hear that more and more now. Instead of taking three steps to transform, saying, why can't we just hit the target, right, yeah. in, the next, in the next change? That's interesting. Uh, so for those of you just joining us, uh, we have a very special guest, David Chow, one of the top CIOs in the world, one of the uh, makes, it, makes the uh, 
the, uh, the top of the social CIO list that are on the internet. Um, and as somebody I just I recently met myself in, in person, um, uh, we have a question from Twitter um, from Arsalan Khan. Do you think doctors should be taught in school uh, to get involved in technology even before they start as doctors? Definitely. Uh, if you look at what's been happening right now, the the choice for let's let's, let's use residents. The residents gets trained at a prestigious organization who had system A. I've heard that there's times where they may make a choice as far as where to, where they want to work based upon the technology portfolio. If if, this, if someone had system B versus system A and they were trained in system A, they may decide to work in an organization that has system A. So this technology portfolio has become a competitive advantage in terms of recruiting. So I definitely do agree that we do need to train. Um, the other the other re, the other reality is is I see lot, lots of physicians and medical staff who, because they were not trained appropriately, they're spending a lot of time doc, documenting and using the system. Um, going electronic was not, the sales pitch was, was not, you can, it's gonna make you faster. There's a lot of benefits of being electronic, but being able to do things quicker is definitely not the reason why we went electronic. So what's been happening is we have physicians who are going home spending late night hours finishing their documentation. And part of the reason is they may not have been trained appropriately, maybe not, have not set their, their system appropriately just for based on their expertise. Therefore, they spend a lot of time. So I definitely do encourage and think you need to put technology training or some sort of core training during as part of that core curriculum because we are in a technology world. You know, people grew up learning how to type and, and then word processing. That's the core. Yeah. Yeah, computer literacy used to be such a big deal. Uh, yeah. But should do doctors and nurses need to learn to code? Code, no, I don't believe so. But there's a lot that love code, and they, they they do it as a hobby. I would say if you think about where the even the code, but, but doesn't that teach the digital mindset about what's possible, about how this stuff actually works? Not saying that they should continue coding, but should they learn to code? Maybe just the logic. I think learning the logic of coding will help them. Just even just one curriculum, just to understand the logic of how a system works because you get a lot of questions. How can we just can't do this? Well, they yeah. understand the logic of why the computer software works. That may help them diverse some of the questions that they may have. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the issue you see is people get into healthcare are usually very passionate about caregiving and they're not technology first, they're caregiving first. And so, you know, it's this matter of priority. And so you said something important about adoption. And so how do we do this? Um, how do we, change the technology but if we do that we also have to figure out how to get the people to change too so what you know what, how, how do you go about doing that what ways do you think about making that you know that dual hand-in-hand -hand technology people change yeah um, the, the the simple answer is you have to communicate you have to go back to the traditional path of communicating you have to go down to the, tr the traditional path of you may have to handle and walk people through this change um, unfortunately, there's no easy button. People like to use computer-based training for some of this. Sometimes it doesn't work. So it, it is very grueling and brutal, but you just have to do a lot of the traditional communication over-communicate. One of the things that I have learned upon any enterprise, let's use EMR implementation, I can have a, the greatest build and, and greatest build, but only train them about 20% of the effort. And the, the output would be a very laxadaisical, even bad install where I can have a terrible build, but I train the users 
40% more, 50% more how to use the system. Look at the bad install, tons of workarounds. But the end result, hey, this is the greatest install ever. Why? They were trained appropriately. We spent the time training them, educating them, learning, teaching them how, about the workaround. So it is a very, it's a grueling effort. It all comes down to communication. Unfortunately, it's not a, in my opinion, just, I don't see any technology solution that's going to be able to solve this adoption. It just Well, it's not a technology problem, right? So so digital transformation requires an investment in people then. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, and yeah. I, I don't think that's, that's always clear to everyone that's involved in that process. There's a lot of focus on the technology and the digital possibilities and not like how are we going to get our people to do that. And so that takes us to, um, uh, before we get to our next question, uh, takes us to uh, how, you know, what models do we see emerging? And I know you've been kind of uh, involved in those discussions online, uh, the whole concept around empowering change agents, saying let's let's not in, uh, spend too much time with the people that aren't ready to change. Let's go and, and, and find the people that are super excited to change, that are energized to do it, and empower them and give them tools and resources, support, and education. What are your thoughts on on, on, on is that is that the kind of thing that we're going to see in the future? That's been my model. So I've had the luxury of building a new team. The people that I have hired and brought in are change agents themselves. So imagine if I bring two leaders who are change agents out of a total of six um, direct reports, there's going to be a lot of just peer pressure to transform themselves to be able to keep up. So I think that's the greatest model. If you're able to create that peer influence, to create a group of change agents into an organization who can influence their peers to adopt and change, that's the best effort because you don't want to be that peer that's left behind while everyone is moving ahead. Um, lots of organizations, the other challenge that I have seen is when they bring too many change agents, but they're not changing the process themselves, the, the organizational process. So it's a tough balance. You know, how do you bring the right change agent with the right fit? Someone that knows how to culturally navigate an organization. That's one of these unspoken things that is not, is not brought to big of a, as big of attention as I would like to see is this cultural fit, this even, you know, during our Twitter chat, the political savviness of driving change. It's well, and I think, yeah, the great change agents have to be mentored a little bit, right? You know, folks like yourself, you know, and, and I think it's great to hear that you said all that because I think that's what makes you that, you know, that visionary CIO is that ability to see there's, we can't do it all ourselves anymore. We need help with the entire organization. Uh, and, and so how do we tap into them? And then how do we teach them the things they don't know yet so they can be, they can be effective in helping us with digital transformation? Yeah, one of the keys that I personally believe is I'm trying to hire all, all of my direct reports have the ability to, to take over my job. That makes my job a lot easier. But that's a very difficult thing. That's a great quote. Right? I want them to be able to do my job so that I could transform myself individually. Because also goes back to me. I need to transform myself. I need to change myself on a daily basis. When I get too comfortable, there's something wrong. So there, there's a lot of that self-reflection that needs to happen. It's not about having other changes change agents in the organization that I personally have to change on a regular basis as well. Yeah. So is that, is that kind of the indicator you use to know that, that you're heading in the right direction is you, you feel pulled a little bit out of your comfort zone? Exactly. I mean, there, there are days when I says, you know, I'm pretty comfortable. I've been pretty comfortable the last three months. I sort of went on, I won't say cruise control, but autopilot. I know exactly what's coming down the pipe. I can predict things. We probably are not transforming ourselves individually. Let's go back to this square, the drawing board. Let's talk about, what needs to happen that way it always keeps us ahead yeah great so let's go ahead and take our next question um this is from paul turner um question is and i think this is a good one what uh 
digital transformation in, in healthcare technology is most closely linked to moving to a value-based care model. Maybe you can give us a little uh, soundbite on what value-based care is, and then uh, maybe your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, so when we talk about value-based care, let, let's look at healthcare in general. This is the only industry to where you do not get paid what you charge. I go to a grocery store, I buy a chocolate bar, I buy milk. There's a price for that, and what they charge is what I pay. Healthcare is different. We have this whole reimbursement model to where I could charge you $100, but I may only get paid at the facility, a hospital, $30, uh, even though I charge you 100 bucks. So this whole shift of value is now, instead of having a fee-for-service model to where if I provide 100 tests, I get paid for a percent of that 100 tests, now it's going to be focused on how, how healthy is this patient? How, how, what is the outcome of that procedure? Are they doing better than before? Or do they have to come back and get retreated again? Or possibly a second procedure? So that's where it's going, the reimbursement model is moving towards. They're going to measure the value outcome. The technology that I really see that needs to happen is in healthcare. We need to have some sort of CRM model. If you think about every industry, they know everything about me as a buyer. But in healthcare, once I leave the hospital, I have no idea what goes on with David Chow. But when they're, in my, when they're within the hospital of the care, you know, the, the electronic medical record knows exactly what I'm going to do, exactly the kind of procedures I'm going to have, the type of uh, food I've been given, the medication history, clinical notes, great stuff with, within that four walls. But once I leave, it just disappears. We have no idea. So a CRM-like model conceptually, where we know a lot about David Chow outside the hospital, is going to be that success factor for population health. Because the prime example is, let's just, you, let's just say I'm on a low-sodium diet, but I'm going to drive through a Burger King. What needs to happen during that time when I'm, I'm going to order my Whopper is, hey, David, you're not supposed to be eating this. Order a chicken salad sandwich. Or, or better yet, order a salad. You know, find a way to change my behavior. And that's where it needs to move down towards. In terms yeah, so of it's, it's kind of like the, the difference between productivity and effectiveness. Just because you can do 100 tests doesn't mean you should, and it's not really focused on an outcome, right? So as opposed to how do we make David Chow healthy, that's the value that we're going after. Is that a good way of summarizing it? That is. And that's where the industry is moving toward when we talk about population health, value-based. It's, it's really about keeping the patient out, out of the hospital, and we should be getting paid to keep patients out because when you come in, that's when, that's when we know you really need to get treated and we put the attention and make sure you get treated the most cost-effective way. Yeah, and now are you uh, being pushed to help the organization shift towards value-based care? Is there a mandate coming down the pike? Help us understand what the, the imperative there and how that's going to affect digital transformation in healthcare. Reimbursement rates is declining from CMS, which is the, um, the, the providers of Medicare and Medicaid. So as that reimbursement starts declining and you're going to be judged based upon the quality of care, that, that's where the digital transformation has to occur. Uh, in the pediatric world, it still has not caught to the adult world. Adult world is doing this on a regular basis where pediatric world is starting to play catch-up. And a lot of these standalone pediatric hospitals have a big market share. So it's a very tough balance. When you think about an organization that may potentially have 85% market share, now how do you transform? How do you, how do you say, hey, I need to move towards this value-based care model, population health model, but I may lose $5 million next year. Because but I'm doing the right thing for the patient. So it's a very tough ask for senior leaders to figure out when to play that card, and especially in the pediatric world where the margins are very well right now and there's not a lot of pressure yet 
but it's coming. So, so what, what is the enabling technology? Is it analytics against electronic medical records or what, what's making that happen and then feeding that you know, to, to the doctors or to, to managers or how does that work? Analytics is definitely key. Um, and our ERP is huge as well because you need to figure out the cost of providing care. I, was, I would bet that most organizations, most healthcare organizations, they can't give you the actual cost of providing care for this one patient. We may give you a good formula, and an average rounded formula calculation, but we don't have the true cost of providing that care. So that's where data is going to come in, your, your ERP data, your supply chain. That's all going to come in addition to the EMR data. So that's the that's the puzzle that everyone's trying to figure out. How do we become a data-driven company? How do we get these mapping for all 40,000 40, tables in EMR to be to be um, integrated? So it's a very the big ask, the tough challenge that we're all facing in the healthcare arena is. Yeah, no, it's, no, it's a fascinating subject and it's going to change our lives. Um, so uh, we're going to uh, talk about population health in just a moment since you brought that up. But first, we're going to take a question from Sal Raza, uh, who asks, can you see uh, VPN or Facebook type communications to include the voices of patients' families and their caregivers to, to connect with clinical data to provide better care? Uh, so we're doing, we're doing that right now internally. So I'm trying to make, just within my department, a social department. So we're using a Facebook-like technology. We're using the Microsoft Yammer platform, just so it allows me to have a one message out to all. Um, but yes, I definitely do see that interaction. And the first organization that really gets that right, who has that Facebook social interaction, who they, they're going to create a, the greatest experience. Most organizations are still very risk averse, as I shared earlier, where they view privacy um, concerns, HIPAA concerns. So therefore, that has not taken off. But we're seeing these one-off um, startups that are providing this technology, but the adoption rate is very slow. Yeah, no, it's um, uh, and this is you know where we see health tech startups kind of giving you know, uh, the the old guard guys uh, uh, a run for their money. Um, so tell us a little bit about you mentioned population health. Um, I know that it's an exciting topic in healthcare, but I'm not an expert, uh, and I think you know a lot more. Yeah, give us a little overview of what that is and why that's important to, to your digital transformation efforts. Right. Let's go back to my previous message. Of the future of healthcare is not about how many patients you're going to see. You know, traditional healthcare is, let's fill my beds up, similar to airlines. How many seats can I fill? The new model of healthcare is, how, many, how can I keep my hospital empty, and how can I make sure the people that come in are the ones that's going to be required to be treated. So now you need to figure out how do you provide wellness and how do you provide care outside your hospital? And that's the game of population health. We're trying, we're trying to gather a pool of patients and then this pool, keeping them healthier, making sure they, they do not come into the hospital, making sure that they exercise regularly, make sure that they eat the right meals that's appropriate in terms of sodium, calorie level. So now we're moving to this journey of we need to get engaged with them outside the hospital. They're not, you need to figure out proactively 24 by seven, how do you change someone's behavior? And it's a tough thing to do. There's no, there's not, there's not a simple technology that's gonna do that, but we're seeing lots of other, other versions. Uh, where if you bring in their, uh, if you provide tools that to bring in their, uh, their caregivers, uh, their family, their friends, you know, there, there's different things you can do, but it sounds like that's, you know, there's some, Big data involved there uh, to measure all of this. Uh, there's operations in the healthcare provider to, to actually engage with these patients. And then there's digital experiences out in the field that patients are connecting to that gives them the support they need 
to, that, to lead healthier lives? Is that, is, is, is that how popular is it, what, that what it looks like? That's what it's going to look like. Um, the, the same way the retail, when you walk into Nordstrom, they know exactly your purchase history. And they could probably predict whether you're going to walk in and turn right or left based on your pattern. That's what we're going to have to move towards in healthcare. Amazon knows exactly when I'm going to need to reorder my laundry detergent just because they know my, my tracking, my history behind it. Healthcare has not got that stage yet where we're predicting what may potentially happen. And that's where the data pieces are going to come in, all the social data. Um, that, that, that's where we're going to have to move towards. Now, is, is the big business of healthcare really going to find that acceptable? Because it sounds like you're actually going to create a solution that's going to create healthier, less sick people and give you guys less patients and less business. Is that, how does that that's challenge, right? How do you go to the board, the CEO says, you know, I'm going to lose X million dollars, X million dollars this year, but I'm doing the greatest thing to keep this population health uh, healthier. But that, that's, that's really the divide right now. Even though we talk about population health, it's a very tough thing to act upon because... But is it like, is it as a service? This is where we're having a chief digital officer that deeply understands digital and the business of things like healthcare who can say, well, but population health might be a service we can charge for, right? Because we're keeping people healthier. I, I mean, I don't know. It, this is the challenge you're facing, David. How, and how do you make all that work? Yeah, and the other challenge, how do you tie in the insurance carriers to be aligned? So right. right now, it's, there's two different lines of business, um, two different lines of incentives where, so now you have to bring those folks in play. So yes, the whole, I mean, data is like, you know, there's, a, there's something that came out yesterday where data is the new oil, data is the new currency. And that's what we really have to move towards in terms of gathering data. But most important, it's not about the number of data points you have. You got to filter out the right data. That's the tough part. Um, filter out the right data to make the right decision. But you can't you can't get to that population health until you figure out what is your strategy, what is your how you going to transform how you provide care. Are you going to make a big focus on virtual care outside of your hospital, or do you want to keep it within your own four walls? So these are tough decisions that healthcare leaders are going through, which is why you're seeing a trend of mega mergers. Healthcare is consolidating. The number of hospitals is shrinking, but getting bigger and bigger. Yeah, you know, that was interesting. Uh, and so, yeah, data is, is clearly destiny in the digital age, and and you know it's the new golden rule. He who has the data makes the rules, right? And so, uh, yeah, there's there's a big land grab uh, that's taking place in, in in trying to get all that. Uh, so we have another question, uh, and and. You know, please, uh, we, we really appreciate the contributions. Uh, we have time for a, a couple more questions. Please post them on Twitter with the hashtag, hashtag CXO Talk. We have a question from Kaleem Sharik. What IT frameworks and methodologies are inevitable for digital transformation in a healthcare enterprise? I'll throw a couple uh, while you think about that, David, onto the pile. Uh, one is DevOps. I think that's absolutely essential for the fast feedback loops that we need to have to create rapidly evolving digital solutions in today's fast moving markets. Um, another one I put in there is growth hacking, which is how do we how do we create something initially and then move that over into what it needs to be to be successful as quickly as and, and effectively as possible. I think those are two important frameworks, but what do you think? What about agile? So that's something we're practicing right now in terms of you know using the agile methodology just to you know, for something as simple as driving down the number of outstanding reports that we need to provide out to our customers. Right? We started about over 900 reports, that were 900 requested reports now. I won't say we finished all 900, but we cut down half based on agile methodology. And I will, I will also add the traditional IT, ITIL. You know, that's really customer service centric. You still have to have that 
service-oriented mentality when you run your IT shop. So the, the combination Agile, DevOps that you mentioned, ITIL, these are all necessary frameworks. The key is not to be so hung up on perfecting these, um, these concepts. You know, go with an agile light, DevOps lights, just to get things moving. If you're so, if you're hung up on that 100% perfection, it may, it may take you forever to get there. And you may never get there. Therefore, it defeated the whole purpose of trying to go down this path of picking a, a, a platform. Although I, I still think you have a challenge of, you know, you have a risk averse and a regulated audience, as you said, and they're, they're going to want everything to be perfect, right? You know, so that, that's your... That's your cross to bear. Uh, so we have a, a question from Katie Goss and Scott Weitzman again. Um, the, um, they want to know about the role of artificial intelligence. That's a buzzword we're seeing in the press all the time now um, in healthcare. And also, what are the security concerns about that? Where do you see the role of, of AI in healthcare? That's going to be huge. I mean, the ability to predict what may potentially happen, it's huge. Even bots. I mean, personal example is, I've been using a bot as my personal assistant in addition to my regular EA. I've been using them simultaneously. And it, it has confused some people. And some people have responded to the bot like it was a normal person. We can also use bot for interaction with patients. I just think they have some questions um, regarding a common cold. That may be able to come in and just create a different level of engagement while, while satisfying the consumers. So AI is huge. But unfortunately, healthcare is still... They're thinking about it, but I don't see it really there yet. People talk about it, but I would say we're still five to seven years away from having anything real in terms of AI, but definitely see the benefits, especially the ability to predict what may potentially happen uh, in terms of someone's health. That's huge, right? If I knew well, I was going to... It might play a big role in population health, right? And the, and the demo, the best demo I ever saw, which I, I don't think was real, but it was, you know, it was, uh, it made a convincing scenario, which is... The doctor is in that Facebook-like chat with the patient trying to, you know, work through some symptoms that they're having. And in the background, the, the AI bot is watching the conversation between the doctor and the patient and pulling up all the relevant medical records, all the symptom, uh, uh, symptom analysis in real time and presenting all of this additional information to support the doctor's decision and their healthcare uh, process in that during that collaborative session with the patient. Uh, and I think that's something that bots, you know, with AI can really make, you know, support caregivers and, and take that load off them uh, and, and do a lot of the legwork. So it, I think there's interesting things happening there. Yeah, yeah, here's one extra thought just to think about. You think about why it takes, it may not happen that quickly. Think about your medical profession. You're a doctor. You went to school for eight years of your life because you're, someone's training you on how, you're going to come out with your medical judgment. Now here you have a bot coming in and say, hey, my judgment's better than yours. I didn't go to school for eight years. I'm just a robot. How do you feel as a profession going to school, spending an entire career getting to that point and now getting a bot coming in and, tell, and predicting what you may potentially have to predict? So I think there, that, that cultural transformation needs to happen. But that's also a big reason why it has not taken off as much because traditional healthcare, you go to school, you go to you go to medical school, then by the time you graduate, you're supposed to be that expert versus having someone automate that or most importantly, having a machine or robot. Well, this is going to be our, our big challenge is that. Um, and we're continuing to get great questions from, from Twitter. So thank you for, for those. Um, we have one from Megan Janis uh, from Textra Health. Uh, and the question is, do you see value in patient-generated data? Do you agree patients might trade that data for better patient experiences? 
Definitely. Um, I we trade our data right now to the retails. I trade my personal. I give up that privacy for convenience. But the challenge is going to be. Let's just say we have patient-generated data. And let's use wearables. You know, I I have all this data about myself on my wearable, and I transmit it to the doctor. What if the doctor doesn't trust the data? And that's going to happen. That's probably the key barrier right now. A physician or a medical profession may not trust that data, even though it's generated by you as a patient. They may discard it. Then you got to come in and do the test again or do run whatever diagnostic it is to get that data again. How does that work? Are we duplicating that effort even though we're, we're trying to streamline? I think that's the cultural barrier, and that's going to be the biggest challenge. But I definitely do see patient-generated data as valuable. But it's, it's only valuable to us. What about the other side that's going to happen? Yeah, this is the whole not invented here discussion. Um, you know, uh, same problem in healthcare is that, you know, if we didn't, if it's not ours, then how can it be any good? Uh, I think what, you know, we're, we're, in digital, we talk about ecosystems, right? We understand that collectively we're much smarter and better and more valuable when we work together. And so, you know, we can partner with our patients. We can partner with, you know, other other clinics and healthcare organizations, and we can pull our data and we can do much better that way. And so, yeah, it's, it's that cultural shift. So how, how do you make that happen? Um, and so how, you know, you know we, we hear this all the time, culture eats strategy for lunch. Uh, how do you, how do you overcome that? What, you know, what, and is that a major barrier for you? It is, as I would say for the entire healthcare industry it is. So you're seeing lots of little niches of pockets of innovation happening. But on the grand scheme of things, it's not there yet. So how does that happen? There's no magical answer. You got to have these changes, like you said, um, who are going to be the decision makers. Until we get that, it's it's a very slow moving progression. But there there is progress when you look at some of the these these niche players who are taking market share. It is happening, but it's not at the scale that we have seen, like like the taxi companies, like some of these other um, Airbnbs. It's not. That has not happened to that scale yet, but you're you're seeing small pockets of here and there. Unfortunately, it's not big enough to really disrupt the industry. Yeah, so um, uh, I think this is uh, probably the most significant challenge that the, the average organization faces is is it's not even just so much the people behavior; it's the mindset, it's the natural inclinations, and 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 I think we'll see as millennials come in, as you mentioned, you know, they, they have a very different expectation. You have probably new nurses and doctors who say, "I." I want to work with healthcare providers that are making the investments in technology uh, because that's part of our mission. The better our technology is, the better it is for, for patients. Um, so uh, let's wrap up with one question, then I'll, we're going to take um, one more uh, um, question from Twitter as well uh, before we round out this episode. Um, how do you view customer experience and the content of the latest technology advances? And this also goes in with a question that Paul Turner asked a little while back on Twitter. Um, a lot of healthcare imaging is still on CDs. Yet now we're looking at, in terms of customer experience, we know that augmented reality, virtual reality, holographic displays, all of this stuff is coming around around the corner. It's about to be in everybody's homes. You know, with the PlayStation VR, it is going into everybody's homes right now. Uh, you know, how do you close that gap? Yeah, you're starting to see, you're starting to see the adoption pick up. Um, let's, let's use AR and VR. You know, instead of just thinking about how it could be used for a patient, think about how powerful that technology can be for you to train your employees. You know, work, workers' comp injuries is huge in hospitals. Teaching your, teaching the clinical staff how to bend at the right angle, how to pick the patient at the right angle using AR, VR. These are some of the simple things that we can use the technology for. So 
I see that adoption rate growing as we speak more and more. I just do not, I don't see enough focus and emphasis from healthcare organizations thinking about how they can use it rather than hearing the buzzwords. Now, these are some very simple use cases of AR and VR, but rather than think about how it can be applied to the patient, think about how you can just use it within your operations or training. So uh, it has, there's still a lot of education that needs to happen. You still have a lot of traditional CIOs who are not thinking that route. They're focusing on keeping the lights on. Let's make sure my core infrastructure is in place. Yep. Make sure my EMR is in place most important because you spend $100 million on EMR, you better make sure that's in place. And then you forget about everything else. So unfortunately, that's, 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 that's where the state of healthcare is. There was a survey that was put out there where 30% of uh, hospitals are still going through EMR implementation. That's huge. Cause I, I would have, I, I could have thought that was probably over with, but I don't think it was still 30% of healthcare organizations. Yeah. So that's still the trend that we're at. Well, still, it's a very exciting industry that you find yourself in at, at, at a, a momentous time in history. Um, and so we're, um, we appreciate you coming and taking the time to visit uh, um, us on CXO Talk. And for everyone out there watching the show, uh, we really appreciate it. Um, uh, CXOTalk.com has a list of all the upcoming guests. Uh, and we're looking forward to having um, uh, David come back on the show sometime again soon. Thank you.